Welcome to the Demystifying Diversity podcast, where each week we explore topics related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. I'm Darylise Lyons. And I'm Anna Marie Jones. Every alternate week, we conduct a question and answer episode based on the prior week's podcast. And today we're talking about a subject that becomes more important as survivors pass on and future generations are tasked with remembering their stories and their struggles. Yes. If you haven't listened to last week's episode, Survival After Genocide, a conversation about the enduring impact of the Holocaust and the human capacity for resilience, please stop now, go back and listen. Darylise, last week's episode is still really resonating with me. I've been thinking a lot about how had you and I been living during that time, during Nazi-occupied territory, during World War II, we'd have been targeted by the SS. You know, I think it's really important to think about that. And I've been thinking more and more about the fact that really at that time in Nazi-occupied territory, there were really only four categories of people, right? So there were victims, victimizers, bystanders, and upstanders. That's very interesting, Darylise, and definitely heard of victims, of course, victimizers, bystanders, but upstander seems to be sort of a new term for me. Can you define upstander and talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I'm like a hardcore Google nerd. So before answering this question, I looked it up. And according to Oxford Dictionary, a definition of an upstander would be a person who speaks or acts in support of an individual or cause, particularly someone who intervenes on behalf of a person being attacked or bullied. So that's the definition, but what does that mean practically? And as you pointed out, Anna Marie, I think the term bystander is something that we've all heard of, right? And there's this idea of the innocent bystander, the person who does nothing but watches, right? And I think that this idea really, when it comes to talking about something like bullying or talking about something like people who were living in an area where, you know, millions and millions of people were being murdered and who did nothing, it really goes to show that the disinterested observer is actually complicit in what's happening, right? Because by doing nothing, you kind of allow things to continue and you're tacitly lending support. And so this idea of an upstander, it's not my idea. (laughs) I didn't come up with it. But I think about it a lot because it really speaks to the fact that as human beings, we want to be invested and involved in what's happening to the people around us. And I think why this is so important to issues of social justice is because the more upstanders there are, the deeper our investment in each other and the more interventions that we can engage in to prevent things like hate crimes, bullying, and discrimination. So there's actually a really great organization called Upstander Project. And I think we'll put a link to their website, but their website is upstanderproject.org. And on there, they have a ton of resources for information and advocacy and allyship. And I hope listeners will go there because, you know, I think there should be more upstandership. Is is that a word? Upstandership? I don't know. I like it. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, then upstandership is an important part of allyship. Well, I totally agree. And I was first introduced to this concept when I was a middle school teacher. So it's very interesting. By law in the state of New Jersey, there is a New Jersey Commission on Holocaust Education, and we were required to teach 
a unit on the Holocaust. And the Holocaust curriculum was written into our sixth grade social studies and literature. And it was stunningly insightful and impactful. Can you talk more about like the specifics of that? Yeah, definitely. First of all, I think it's incredible that New Jersey has made it a requirement to teach the Holocaust because the lessons on religiosity, ethnic, and racial tolerance are so rich from a historical and literary perspective. Well, anyway, one of my students invited her grandfather to speak to our class. And I mean, I'll never forget that experience because as we talk about in this episode, that generation is passing on. Hearing his story changed me forever. He sat in a chair and the class gathered at his feet, and he shared with us that he was a survivor of Dachau, which is one of the internment camps where over 40,000 people were exterminated for either being Jewish, politically opposed to the SS, homosexual, and basically opposition to the party. So it could be any religious or ethnic group that was opposed to them. And he focused mostly on what his life was like before he entered the camp. And what struck me the hardest, Aralise, then and now, is that his life was eerily much like the lives of my students. And that was 22 years ago in 1998. And much like the lives my children are living today. I think that's such an important point. And I'd love to hear a little bit more about his life if you remember and are open to sharing about it. Yeah, so he was from Poland and he was living a wonderful life, you know, with his family. He he said he was surrounded with lots of love and good education and he came from wealth, privilege, and he explained that it all changed in the blink of an eye and that his family was stripped of their home, their possessions, I mean, dignity. <laughs> And then ultimately, his uh, parents and his siblings perished, all because they were Jewish. And he said the only good thing that came out of being in Dachau was that he met his future wife. I mean, they basically both lost their families during the Holocaust and just had each other, which I guess was very lucky. And they were liberated in 1945, and they came to the United States shortly after and were married here. But he spoke of the importance of learning history for the sake of not repeating it and forgiveness for the sake of moving forward and really experiencing love and true freedom. And he also said that if he didn't forgive and choose to love, then the alternative would mean being stuck in anger and hate. And that reminded him too much of his oppressors. So he felt it was his job and the job of his Jewish brothers and sisters to break that cycle of hate and anger because they didn't want to be like their oppressors. You know, and he told our class that choosing love and forgiveness was the most powerful thing that you can do. And that really became the theme of our class and our lessons um, as we were going through this unit. So, yeah, it definitely was something that stuck with me forever and it changed my perceptions on how to forgive and how to move on and not be stuck in hate and anger. And therefore, I'm always striving to understand or try to understand others who think differently than me rather than feeling opposed to them with anger and hatred. And it's also important to note that when groupthink is involved, Aralise, as it was with the Nazi regime, it's so simple to get stuck in the negative biases that can then manifest into fear and hatred, and then the unthinkable mass genocide. 
Yeah, I mean, that idea of groupthink, Anna Marie, I'm so glad that you pointed that out because I think groupthink lends to the dehumanization of other people, right? Like it, in the same way that I think once you hear people's individual stories and once you, you know, there's a program called Names Not Numbers where they really like humanize the experience of those who went through the Holocaust and survived, I think that dehumanization that happens, groupthink is a huge catalyst for that and it perpetuates that. So yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm wondering, as you've been researching for this episode, did you learn about any other states in our country that are lawfully obliged to teach the Holocaust? Yeah, it's a great question. There's actually an online resource called the Jewish Virtual Library, and they keep a list of all the states that require Holocaust education as part of their curriculums. And believe it or not, I found it staggering that there are only 15 out of 50 United States that actually require Holocaust education. This doesn't mean that only 15 states have it, but it's only sort of legally mandated by 15 states. And I think it's important to list those states. So I'm going to list them. And hopefully if listeners live in one of those states, they can be proud of what their young people are learning. But so the states are, the 15 states are California, Colorado, Connecticut, Delaware, Florida, Illinois, Indiana, Kentucky, Michigan, New Hampshire, New Jersey, as you mentioned, New York, Oregon, Rhode Island, and Virginia. And there are some other states like Maryland and Pennsylvania and Texas and Washington that encourage Holocaust education and where there is a lot of Holocaust education in the curriculums, but those states don't mandate it. And I think we'll put a link to that list as a resource in the show notes, but it's staggering to me that it's not mandatory. And I can say that I produced a couple of pieces for WHYY in Philly a couple years ago, and one of them was about students from the KIPP School and Kelman Brown Academy and how these students created a documentary based on interviews with Holocaust survivors. And I did another piece about the 75th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz and the importance of remembrance. And I think that it's important for us to learn as much about the Holocaust as possible. And it's becoming more and more urgent now that many of the last remaining survivors are, as you pointed out, Anna Marie, nearing the ends of their lives. I really hope that you'll include a link to those pieces on the website. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. We can do that. But one of the things that I want to point out is that in the piece I did for WHYY that centered on the survivor interviews for the student documentary, one of the survivors was a woman named Goldie Finkelstein. And if listeners listened to our episode, which I hope they did, they'll have heard Joseph, her son's voice included in the episode. And it turned out that Goldie actually passed away several months after sharing her story in that video documentary. And then Bill Schwabe, who I spoke with for this episode, passed away in July of this year. So, you know, it's essential to memorialize these lessons and hear firsthand accounts. I know. And I find it sickening that as many personal accounts as there are, and as many museums as we have dedicated to the preservation of evidence and remembrance of the Holocaust all over the world, and in fact, 
There are documented confessions from former members of the Third Reich. We still have people who deny the Holocaust. And there's Hitler's manifesto called Mein Kampf, which could not be more evidentiary of his plans. And there's the famous diary of Anne Frank. And many years ago in Amsterdam, I visited the cramped attic that Anne and her family hid in. So, you know, I've seen evidence. And besides Holocaust deniers, you also talked about the forbidden art created in the camps and the ghettos to help prisoners stay mindful, soothe themselves, stay sane, and keep in touch with who they really were. And I Never Saw Another Butterfly is a heart-wrenching collection of children's art and poetry from the Terezin ghetto or concentration camp. It was called both. And that was located in the Czech Republic from 1942 to 1944. And just to let listeners know, there were a total of 15,000 children under the age of 15 that passed through Terezin. And of that 15,000, only 100 survived. I'm bringing this up because I've owned that anthology. I never saw another butterfly for many, many years, for 22 years now, ever since I taught that unit on the Holocaust. And I have to tell you, Darylise, I don't pick it up often because I can't look at it without crying. But I'm going to share a few lines from what a 15-year-old boy named Peter Fischel wrote, and it's included in that collection. Yeah, please do. So the quote is, and I'm sorry, I get so emotional, but the quote is, we got used to underserved slaps, blows, and executions, to seeing piled up coffins full of corpses, to seeing the sick amid dirt and filth, and to seeing the helpless doctors. We got used to it that from time to time, 1,000 unhappy souls would come here and that another thousand unhappy souls would go away. So just to let everyone listening know, Peter was transferred to Auschwitz, and that's where he died at the age of 15. And I'd love if we can also include this reference. Yeah, absolutely. We'll put it in the show notes. I've read that anthology, and it is heartbreaking and beautiful, too, in a a very sad way. It is. It's gorgeous because a lot of the children captured their happy moments as well as their sad moments because I think kids have such a wonderful way of seeing the upside of things, even when they're so dire. So if you read through it, I mean, there are a lot of beautiful pieces and a lot of artwork that they created along with their poetry and prose. And, you know, I'm wondering if there are any pieces that you've come across and that you'd like to bring the attention to for our listeners. Yeah, well, I think, you know, you mentioned I Never Saw Another Butterfly and the title of the collection was actually derived from a child's poem by that title. And and that poem specifically is just excruciating and beautiful. And so, as you mentioned, Anna Marie, yes, yes, we will include a link to the anthology. But there are so many beautiful books and stories and heartbreaking books and stories and resources. And I could give many, many, many examples of that. And and a lot of personal narratives are what I find really heartbreaking, like the memoirs that were written about that time. But I specifically want to give one resource, which actually listeners 
who heard the episode will have heard the voices of Joseph Finkelstein, who I mentioned earlier, and Louis Gantman, who are on the board of the Auschwitz-Birkenau Memorial Foundation in Philadelphia, the Philadelphia chapter of the organization. And why I mention that is that on the 75th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz, the Auschwitz-Birkenau Memorial Foundation actually sent a delegation of more than 100 survivors and their families to the Nazi death camp known as Auschwitz. But as part of that, as part of sending this delegation of more than 100 survivors and their family members, the Auschwitz-Birkenau Memorial Foundation collected personal stories from all of the survivors that were going. And because I'm a person who loves personal stories, and I think that that's actually where we make the biggest difference and the biggest impact, we'll put a link to that page on the Auschwitz-Birkenau Memorial Foundation's website, which includes all of the stories. And then, of course, we'll put a link to I Never Saw Another Butterfly. You know, Daryl, I wanted to bring up the fact that there's been an uptick of anti-Semitism in the last couple of years. And can you recall any examples of incidents where other religious groups rallied around victims in solidarity? Yeah, so it's sad and it's staggering that people are victimizing members of faith communities and it's horrible, but there is beauty in the fact that various communities of faith are recognizing the need to stand together and to prevent against what can only really be described as acts of anti-religious terrorism. So in 2018, after the Tree of Life synagogue shooting in Pittsburgh, which killed 11 people, and listeners might remember that, but after that horrific incident, the Muslim American community raised more than $200,000 in, I think it was like in four days. And there's a CNN article that includes a video that really demonstrates solidarity and support and the connection between the communities of faith in Pittsburgh. So we'll put a link to that in the show notes, because I think it really, you know, far better than just hearing me talk about it. I think it's better to hear people from the Muslim American community who rallied around the Jewish community in support and solidarity, you know, it's really better to hear from the sources. So we'll put a link to that. But also, I think it's critical to really bring the story full circle and share that five months later, there were attacks on two mosques in New Zealand, killing 50 people. So this was an attack on the Muslim community in New Zealand. And members of the Tree of Life Synagogue, who had just suffered their own devastating loss five months earlier, they actually fundraised in support for members of the Muslim community in New Zealand. So really that cross-religious, cross-cultural support, I think we're seeing it within a number of faith communities. And I think it's wonderful, although it's devastating. It's tragic that people have such a capacity for hate, but also beautiful to see the love and support. Yeah, you know, that was my biggest takeaway this episode, the power of hate, but also the power of love. Yeah, definitely. It was certainly a theme. Well, I'm curious about listener takeaways and questions as well. So if you're listening to this and have a reflection or a question, please call us at 844-888-8148 and leave us a message. Or you can send a message through our website at demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com. You know, Anna-Marie, something I want podcast listeners to know about is an offer from our Q&A episode sponsor, Vita Supreme. 
Health is essential. And I think a big part of staying healthy involves giving our bodies everything they need to heal and recover and doing it early and in a preventative way, which is why supplements can be so essential. As you know, I get all of my supplements from Vita Supreme. The company's products are amazing, and they're offering Demystifying Diversity podcast listeners 20% off on all of their products. In fact, they put together a special Demystifying Diversity podcast listener page where you can go and get any or all of my three favorite supplements at vitasupreme.com slash pages slash diversity, or you can simply go to their main website and purchase any of their many products. When you're ready to check out, just enter the code diversity to receive your 20% discount. That's vitasupreme.com slash pages slash diversity and enter the code diversity for 20% off. Darylise, I want to thank you for introducing me to Vita Supreme. I've been taking Supreme Greens and joint support, and I can tell you, I really feel a difference. So Darylise, let's dive into our listener questions. The first question comes from an anonymous caller. Uh, hi, Darylise. Uh, I was wondering what we can do to uh, combat a Holocaust denial, because there's a lot of denial about it, and you know, we need people to understand that it's true and real. But how would we combat and uh, be able to uh, defend ourselves against their arguments? Thank you. Thank you so much for calling and for asking that question. I know Anna Marie brought up the idea of Holocaust denial earlier, but we didn't really delve into it. And in case anyone listening isn't familiar with this, it's tragic and it's criminal and it's horrible, but there are those people who deny that the Holocaust ever happened or who distort or minimize the events that led to the genocide of approximately 11 million people. So millions of people were victimized, displaced, forced into slave labor and murdered. And yet there are those out there who will claim that it just never happened. And I think that damage that they do is twofold, right? So it's damaging to discount the lived experience of millions and millions of people. That's horrible and that's horrific. And it is anti-Semitic and it's biased and it's bigoted to do that. The other horrible thing that happens when people start to deny or minimize something as horrific as the Holocaust is that it prevents us as a larger society and as a collective from taking reparative actions to keep something like that from happening in the future and to keep marginalized groups from being targeted. And I think the events of the Holocaust really demonstrate that when one group is targeted, all people become vulnerable because there's a poem that was written by a Lutheran pastor, Martin Nimoye, and it's about the cowardice of German intellectuals and certain clergy people, including by his own admission, uh, the poet himself, following the Nazis' rise to power. And so I'm going to read this poem. I'm going to read the full version of the poem. And it goes, first they came for the communists, and I did not speak out because I was not a communist. Then they came for the socialists, and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak out for me. 
And I think that poem hopefully drives home the importance of those people out there are not just those people out there, right? We're all human. And if we don't take action to stand for our fellow siblings and humanity, the chances are is that we're already being victimized or oppressed in some way um, if the system is oppressive. But even if we're not, that will trickle down to us, right? And I think remembering the past is a crucial precursor to embracing our shared humanity. But the listener question was pragmatic, right? Which was how do we combat it? And I think part of combating it is what we did in the episode. It's what people are doing out there in terms of listening to survivor stories and gathering memoirs and preserving art and artifacts, right? We have to document the harsh realities that occurred. And that's happening. It's continually happening. There are so many memoirs and art and artifacts that have been salvaged from that painful period in human history. And That's why in this episode, when I interviewed Louis Gantman and Joseph Finkelstein, both of whom sit on the board of the Auschwitz-Birkenau Memorial Foundation, and also interviewed Holocaust survivors and those who work at various museums and educational institutions, they all spoke about how remembering the past is essential. And we'll include links in the show notes to the National Liberty Museum website, the National Museum of American Jewish History, the Cat Center and the JFCS, which has a Holocaust survivor support program, because I think the more that we can humanize these experiences through personal narratives, through art, through artifacts, and the more that we can have a body of documented evidence that shows that the Holocaust did happen and it was real and its impact is still being felt today, Holocaust denial might still happen as a form of weaponized anti-Semitism and intellectual anti-Semitism and bigotry and hatred. But the preservation of memory is a powerful counter-argument to denial. And I think the more that we can educate, and Anna Marie spoke about educating in schools and educating people early and often, we might not be able to reach everyone, but hopefully we can educate more people and have more people remember and more people be invested in preventing these sort of atrocities than not. Absolutely. Also want to reiterate being an upstander rather than a bystander helps to counteract that as well. So Darylise, we have another question. Hi, Anna Marie. Hi, Darylise. My name is Rachel and I'm calling from New York. The thing I wanted you guys to discuss, I wanted to get your take on, um, There's, I'm Jewish and there's a huge division in my community right now, politically speaking. There are some Jews who support Israel and support Donald Trump, and there are other Jews who would never hear of it. And what is your advice for having those difficult conversations? I mean, there are friendships that are breaking up after years and years, but it, there's such a division within the Jewish people. We're such a historically marginalized group. And I'm having such a hard time understanding how other Jews can support Trump. Okay, can't wait to hear your take on this. Thanks, guys. Oh, hi, Rachel. That's such an important question. And, you know, I don't think that question is unique to the Jewish American community. Politics right now are incredibly polarized and polarizing. And I think it's important to know that and that there are a number of communities that are finding themselves divided over these political lines, uh, Republican versus Democrat, Trump supporter versus non-Trump supporter versus Biden supporter. 
But I, I want to speak a little bit more to the specific nature of your question and some of the reasons why many American Jews might support Trump. And so there are a lot of things that the Trump administration has done that has positively benefited the um, Jewish community. So, for example, the Trump administration brokered the first Arab-Israeli peace deal in a quarter of a century. They moved the United States embassy in Israel to Jerusalem and recognized Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. The Trump administration got out of the Iran deal, signed an executive order that implements measures to fight back against rising anti-Semitism, particularly on U.S. college campuses. And Trump also signed the Justice for Uncompensated Survivors Today Act of 2017, and that act ensures restitution to survivors and their descendants. And Trump signed into law the Never Again Holocaust Education Bill, which provided $10 million in federal funds to expand Holocaust education for future generations. So to vilify um, members of the Jewish American community for supporting someone who has done things for the Jewish American community, I think this gets messy, right? Because there's been a rise in anti-Semitism, and we even see that coming from other minority groups. Many Trump supporters, Jewish and not, they cite the issue of rhetoric versus results. And so what I mean by that is that even though a lot of people who support Donald Trump have acknowledged that he says hateful things about people, he has expressed a lot of bigotry in his rhetoric, in his speeches, but they sort of look at what he's done and say, yeah, but he's really helped and uplifted our community in these ways. So I want to be very clear that I'm not endorsing Trump and I don't want to give a sense of my political leanings, but I definitely can't stand behind someone who has done so much that is divisive and discriminatory. But at the same time, I think that it's essential not to vilify those people who have supported Trump, but to understand that, especially, you know, there are a lot of members of the Jewish American community who believe that Donald Trump has done a great deal to uplift the community and to actively invest in their interest, especially at a time when I think there has been a rise in anti-Semitism and a lot of violence against that community. And so what we're thinking about, right, is this notion of letting go of someone that you perceive to be in support of your community and of your interests, even if you see that that person's words and actions have harmed others. And I think that's where a lot of people are struggling, right? Like we, in this podcast, we talk a lot about the interconnectedness of oppression and that if someone is marginalizing or targeting one group, the likelihood is, is that impact is going to be felt by many, many people and that it's not okay under any circumstances. But I think what's happening is there are people who kind of look at like, wow, Trump is actually doing things to uplift and support our community. And we are a community that's been very marginalized and highly victimized. So not all um, members of the Jewish American community are Trump supporters, not by a long shot. There are a lot of people who really have cited some of his actions and said, I cannot stand behind this person. It, Rachel, it sounds like you're one of those people. And to be honest, that would be the camp that I would land in. But I also want to just make space to understand that there are people who feel like they've been very marginalized and to have someone that is wanting to uplift that their community feels 
almost priceless and really hard to let go of. But the truth of the matter is that Trump is going to be out of office in January and Biden will be taking office. And then we're left to deal with whatever fractures and divisions in society exist. And we have to find a way forward. So I think just my suggestion is to come from a space of understanding that many people who support Trump aren't doing so because they're bad people. I think they might have a vested interest and that may be different than your vested interest. They might have looked past some of the things that for you are just egregious and unreconcilable with your personal interests and beliefs. But I think ultimately it's essential to really lead with listening and to try to figure out, you know, why, like, why is someone so supportive of Trump and what can we glean from that as a community? And I think sometimes people's values and their beliefs and their vote might fly in the face of your own deeply held values. So I'm sorry for those fissures. And I don't think that they're easy to heal. But I'm grateful that you asked the question. And hopefully my answer will help um, in some way. And hopefully it won't ruffle too many feathers. Darylise, I'm glad you shared all of that. I think we tend to think people are either all good or all bad. And it's important to acknowledge that there are a lot of nuance to these issues. Well, let's move on to the next question, which also includes some personal experience. Hi, uh, my name is Robin, and I'm calling from uh, Livingston, New Jersey, my temple community in Short Hills, New Jersey, and the greater Jewish community in our area in um, Essex County, New Jersey, makes a really big effort to educate and prepare college-bound kids for the anti-Semitism that they'll face on college campuses. But it's still pretty devastating to sit in a big lecture hall and hear professors, especially when you're at a reputable, competitive university that these kids work so hard to get into, and they hear their professors bash Israel, or they hear their classmates bash Jews in general with just snide remarks, or sometimes they could hear professors state their outright support for BDS or otherwise. And so we spend a lot of time speaking with our kids. My kids are in high school. Um, one specifically is a junior. So we're talking about where he's going to apply to school and, you know, what's to come. And we listen and follow speakers like Barry Weiss, who's formerly of the New York Times and who talks a lot about anti-Semitism on college campuses. And we engage in conversation with our friends and family. And we listen to other college-age students who we know share their experiences. And it's real. And um, for me as a parent, I can't help but wonder where are the professors or their classmates, where that narrative is coming from. But I really hope that my children are prepared to respond to anti-Semitic comments. But most importantly, I I really want them to feel safe and confident enough to engage in healthy debate and actually have a conversation and understand where beliefs come from and and just work to shift the narrative and, you know, dare to continue that conversation. I think that we can't just expect that because we know that anti-Semitism is is wrong, that people around us are just going to change their thought process and think from a different perspective. But I think that it's our responsibility to listen to their perspective, try to understand where it's coming from, and then try to just sort of shift it. So anyway, I thought I'd share that and I thank you for your time and consideration and the time that you're giving to this topic. So 
Thank you. Oh, Robin, thank you. Really, thank you so much. And I think you're leading by example in terms of being willing to shift the narrative and have a difficult conversation by bringing this up. So I would say that I don't actually see it as the responsibility of members of the Jewish faith or members of any community that's being discriminated against to work to shift the narrative. I mean, I do think that it can be important and empowering and a form of self-advocacy and an essential part of moving into a different way and and a different reality. But I don't want to put that responsibility on members of the Jewish community. And I think this goes back to the point of upstanders and allyship. And I think that this is where there needs to be more upstanders and more allies. And it's devastating that there's such rampant and pervasive hate being espoused at college campuses. And the sad irony is that this is taking place as a parallel process to the rise of more diversity initiatives and a seeming embrace of variance and variety, right? So like we're seeing this upsurge in diversity and education and inclusion awareness on campus. And at the same time, this rise in anti-Semitism. And there's a really great data-driven article from the Huffington Post that we'll include a link to in the show notes that talks about the anti-Semitism that's occurring on college campuses, because I think it's important for people to know more about that. And you asked where this anti-Semitism is coming from. And I'm just going to say, I'm not going to speculate because I think that just adds fire to the fuel of hatred and discrimination to regurgitate any hate speech that other people are espousing or to repeat slurs or negative stereotypes. But I do think that some important actions we can take, whether we're members of a marginalized community or whether we're allies, is to report these incidents. And the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League, is a great place to report hate speech and discrimination. So we can include a link to the ADL's website for people to do that. And honestly, in a previous episode, I had interviewed Ahmet Salim Tikilioglu, and he spoke about how, you know, people have a tendency often to not report what's happening because they minimize it, right? Or they think like it's not that bad. But the truth of the matter is it is bad. And it's almost like ripples in an ocean, right? Like a little a little ripple spreads outward and has untold and unforeseeable effects. And so if something is happening, like you want to be saying something, and I'm saying this really more to allies than to members of the Jewish American community, because I don't think that the sole responsibility should be on that community to shift public perception. I think that we need to have far more upstanders. I will say you mentioned Barry Weiss's work, and I think her work is problematic because in Weiss's work, she vilifies and reduces other groups in ways that can be divisive. So there's a really great Slate article that delves into some of the hypocrisies of her arguments. And so we'll post a link to that in the show notes as well. But I think something that Barry Weiss does a really good job of is pointing to the deeply disturbing reality that anti-Semitism is bolstered by many on the right and on the left. And I think that can't go overlooked, that there are members, you know, whose political leanings are on the right who are espousing anti-Semitic views and members on the left who are espousing anti-Semitic views. And I would say that the way to move forward is to continue to call it out, call out any form of bigotry or hatred or discrimination 
raise awareness and let it be known that it's not okay. And I think that sometimes the challenge is that when anti-Semitism occurs, the reaction to it isn't nearly what it should be. So like, for example, let's look at what happened with Deshaun Jackson making anti-Semitic remarks on Twitter in the summer. And then Steven Jackson, who defended him, and both of them got slaps on the wrists. You know, there wasn't the same amount of pushback that there would have been when, for example, Roseanne Barr made a racist comment and was fired from her TV show. And so all this to say that I think the enforcement of a zero tolerance policy for hate speech really should be uniformly applied. And we have to recognize that anti-Semitism in any form is violence and we have to take it seriously. And my hope is, is that people listening who might not have been aware previously will start to step into the ally zone and that those who may be Jewish themselves will not minimize any moments of anti-Semitism that they experience and that more people start to report these things and call it out and speak out and rally, you know, around the Jewish American community in the way that people have rallied around other communities. And I think just in general, our society has to do better. Yeah. And once again, just to remind people that we have to um, really be more aware and not be bystanders and not minimalize things that we hear and speak up when we hear them. I've reported something to the Anti-Defamation League recently. Well, not recently, about two years ago, something was written in shaving cream on one of my neighbor's cars and it was an anti-Semitic remark. And I made sure it was reported. And thankfully, it already had been reported. So there was more than just (laughs) me as a bystander. Well, and in that instance, Anna Marie, you were an upstander. And I think that's important, right? That upstandership, it doesn't have to be this grandiose thing, but it's making sure that you're firmly stepping into the ally zone in those moments and, and willing to take action, even if it's a little uncomfortable. Absolutely. And Darylise, we have one last question. Hi, my name is Hannah. I'm calling from Brooklyn, New York. And my question is how Jews who often now in this country, in the United States, occupy privileged spaces, um, rationalize their, not rationalize, but um, sort of work through their privilege, their often white privilege alongside being religious minorities and how that plays into picking up for other groups who are um, more marginalized in this country. Uh, That's all. Hi, Hannah. I think that's a phenomenal question and really poignant, especially when placed immediately after a question about the pervasiveness of anti-Semitism, especially on college campuses. So, you know, I think these might seem like paradoxical realities, right? How can a person have privilege and also be a member of a sometimes targeted or disadvantaged minority? But I don't see these two things as irreconcilable or even opposing. I think that Alyssa Crouch in her interview in this episode, she spoke about all of us being Venn diagrams. And I think that's so important to remember because it acknowledges that we all have areas of overlap and intersection. And so it's possible, right, to be part of a Venn diagram where whiteness is overlapping with one community and minority status is overlapping as another. And I think that acknowledging this simultaneous experience is essential. And, you know, I just want to go on record as saying that this is not unique to members of the Jewish community. We speak a lot about the intersectionality of identity and how important that is to embracing the humanity of ourselves and others, right? So 
I would say that for anyone who's a member of a minority, it's important to be with one's own trauma, whether it be individual trauma or ancestral trauma, generational trauma. And there are some fabulous resources for that. There's a book called Semitism, Being Jewish in America in the Age of Trump by Jonathan Weissman. And then there's the book Healing Racial Trauma, The Road to Resilience by Sheila Weiss Rowe. There are also really important books for allyship. One book that I wholeheartedly recommend is Thoughts from a Unicorn, 100% Black, 100% Jewish, 0% Safe by Manish Tana, who is an African-American and Orthodox Jewish blogger. And Thoughts from a Unicorn, I I love it because it's like a straight talking, very witty collection of memoirs and essays. And I think there's even a few haikus in there, right? It's so full of insight and reflections on personal experiences. And in my experience, that's where the healing begins to happen. And that's also where we can start to really acknowledge the rich intersection of our own and other identities is by making it personal, by making it really and deeply personal. And so, yeah, I recommend all of those books and we'll put those links to those in the show notes. I just can't resist that title, Thoughts from a Unicorn. I know. I love that title. (laughs) Well, let's not forget your book, Darylise, In Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity. You do something really rare which is that you give people tools and resources, both as marginalized individuals and as those with privilege. And your work does such a great job of supporting people and seeing their own struggles and the struggles of others. So I commend you in what you've written. Oh, thanks so much, Anna-Marie. And thanks, Hannah, for the question. I think it's really useful for people all people to interrogate where they fit in. And so many of us, and Anna Marie, I know you and I speak about this all the time, but we have privilege in some areas and not in others. And so I think that's an essential reminder. Absolutely, Darylise. And before we say goodbye, let's make sure to do our Demystifying Diversity t-shirt giveaway. During each Q&A episode, we select a name at random from all the subscribers to our newsletter and all the callers and people who emailed with questions. And this week, the name we picked is Andrew Hooper. Yay! Yay! Woohoo! So Andrew is one of our subscribers to our newsletter, and we'll be contacting Andrew to arrange to send out a free t-shirt as a thank you for being a Demystifying Diversity podcast listener. If you want to be eligible to win a t-shirt, call, email, or subscribe to our email list. Subscribing is great because you'll keep up to date on episodes and events. Yes, just go to demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com and sign up. It only takes a couple of seconds. Congrats again, Andrew. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks to everyone who's listening. Yes, and each episode of the Demystifying Diversity podcast is written, reported, and produced by Darylise Lyons. With the invaluable assistance of Anna Marie Jones, reporter, producer, and co-collaborator, Paul Kondo, assistant producer and editor, Raina Epstein, creative assistant, Sunny Taylor, content editor and creative collaborator, Zach James, marketing manager, and Monica Lynn, graphic designer. Our Q&A episode song is Locale by Speakeasy with permission from Blue Dot Studios. If you haven't already, please subscribe. And if you'd like to join in on the conversation, visit demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com or call 
888-8148 and leave us a message. And if you'd like to explore these topics outside of the podcast, please pick up a copy of Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity by Daryl Lyons. Thank you again to everyone for listening. Join us next week for our next episode, LGBTQIA+, Embracing the Spectrum of Human Sexuality and Gender Identity. In the meantime, let's practice empathy and work together to create a more inclusive world.